We're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to read from verse 14 to verse 21 again. And that's where we're going to pick up. You ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for each and every person within the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that they would draw near to you. Lord, you said that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Lord, we understand from the scripture that it says that a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. And so, Lord, we come with our humility and with our brokenness. Lord, we come to you knowing that you are a great God who has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we could unburden ourselves, that Lord, we could lay our burden at your feet. And that Lord, we could experience forgiveness and joy. And cleansing. That Lord, we could walk with a heart guilt free. Because of Jesus. Lord, set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to Give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. In the opening verse, we looked at the provenance of our redemption, the source of our redemption. It's God. And then from verses 2 through 21, there are a series of pledges, a series of promises. God makes promises that he will keep. And then in verses 22 through 28, we see the perversity, the wickedness, the unwillingness of the people to listen to their God. Remember what we've learned so far. From chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 42, the theme of those chapters are liberation. We are set free. We are set free by God. 
the Lord has appointed his people to be both witnesses and servants in verses 10 through 13. In verse 10, remember what it said earlier. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And remember what we learned from verse 10. This is why God chose you. This is why God saved you. God chose you and God saved you so that you could know him personally, intimately, as you walk in day by day fellowship, that you might believe in him. And remember what we learned. That means trust in, rely on, cling to, believe his promises, believe his word, believe what the scripture teaches. Remember for those of you who have been following along in John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we see from John's gospel, it says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing that you may have life in his name. It's the kind of belief that is more than an intellectual assertion. It's more than simply bowing to the real understanding that there's a God and that there's a Jesus, but it's where you're staking every confidence that that's true. And remember verse 10, and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. The idea being, guess what? Atheism isn't an option. Polytheism isn't an option. Failed philosophies of human beings aren't an option. Human religion is not an option. God wants friendship and relationship. The Lord wants us to grasp, to understand and embrace the value of having a real relationship with him. And because we are servants, because we are witnesses, because we are believers, we are instructed to know the Lord, the only true and living God, and that he alone is the savior of the world. And apart from him, there is no savior. And because God will deliver his people, the people Israel, because he will deliver them from bondage and captivity, the people were willing to bear witness to the following facts. Number one, that he's revealed the truth about himself. And number two, both to Israel and to the world, he's revealed himself that he is the only savior of the human race. He is both to Israel and the world, the only true and living God. And he alone possesses eternal power and all judgment rests with him. You know why that's important? Because everybody and their mother wants to debate religion. They want to debate philosophy. They want to debate what you can and can't do. And the reason why they want to debate what you can and can't do, because it's easier to make rules and follow rules and break rules than to have a real relationship with a real person and walk with them. Imagine you meet your husband or your wife and the very first thing out of their mouth is, "Okay, let's get the rules straight. This is what it means to have a relationship with me. 
You have to wake up at a certain time. You can only eat certain things. You can only do certain things. You can only watch certain programs. You can do this. You can do that. You can do this. You can do that. You can do this. You can do that. And your whole relationship is based on what you can and you can't do. That's the way some people see religion. It's a series of duties and obligations. But grace is different. A.W. Tozier wrote, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast, bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. It's a big word for those who are out of luck. Now, remember, this is from a person who doesn't believe in luck, that you had come to the end of your rope, that you have run out of any good thing. Here's what it says, quote, it's used to us. Sinful men is to save us and to make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what we've been singing about in worship. If you listen carefully to all of the words that were sung tonight, it was to glorify God for all that he has done in Christ. And so. It says in verse 14, thus says the Lord, your redeemer. Remember, he's the one who bought you out of the marketplace of sin, the holy one of Israel. That is, he is pure and just for your sake. I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. Remember, remember what I've been telling you over and over again as we've been studying this passage. Isaiah was written in 700 B.C. Actually, to be more technical, the children of Israel are going to be taken and destroyed by the Assyrian armies in the north in about 722 B.C. 150 to 180 years before the Babylonian captivity, the children in the south in Judah and Jerusalem will be uprooted from their homes. Their families will be destroyed. They will be placed in captivity. Because their family is killed, because their temple is tore down, because they are taken as slaves, they are going to be in this foreign land and they're going to think that God has abandoned them. That the promises that he made were off because of their wickedness and their sin. They were going to come to a place and a position in their life where many of them, even most of them, are going to think that their wickedness and their sinfulness and their circumstances are such that God has pretty much written them off. But he says, for your sake, I will send to Babylon. Do you know what he's saying? For your sake, I'm going to come and get you. Not because you deserve it, but I made a a promise to Abraham and I made a promise to Isaac and I made a promise to Jacob and I made a promise to David that I was going to make good my promises. God is going to send a savior. And if that means redeeming them and bringing them back out of bondage, he is going to do it. That's what that means. And bring them all down as fugitives. In other words, he's going to treat them like they're criminals the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships, you have to understand something. 
Babylon and the Chaldeans in the southern tip of that peninsula that you and I call Iraq that goes all the way down to the Persian Gulf in ancient Mesopotamia had one of the largest armies and navies in the known world. They were powerful, unconquerable. And so remember, that would be like if someone took all of you captive and placed you in Yemen. No, that's not a good it would be like if someone was captured and brought to the United States from, I'm trying to think of a small and insignificant country, Swaziland. We take the people from Swaziland, we put them all in Colorado and we incarcerate them. And the armies of Swaziland are going to come and liberate them go against the United States Army, Air Force, and Marines. It's not going to happen. You're not going to win. You will lose. There's no physical, military way to redeem them. But God will redeem them. He says in verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel. I am the King. In other words, they aren't an accident. God created them, the creator of Israel. And remember, by that, he means the sum and the substance, the combination of this people group in order to bring about the Messiah. And remember, in verses 16 through through 19, it says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. This is reminiscent of what he did earlier in Egypt when the children were taken captive. Remember when Moses and the children were going to be liberated and they found themselves up against the Red Sea and Moses holds out his stick and the Red Sea parts. In other words, physical circumstances aren't going to impede the living Lord who brings forth the chariot and the horse The army and the power, they shall lie down together and they shall not rise. The idea being that if Babylon should try to thwart the plan of God, he will destroy them. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. We have an idiomatic expression. Imagine someone says, how are you going to put out that fire? Now, there's different kinds of fires. If your house is burning down, it's going to be difficult to put out the fire. If you were in Southern California recently and you have 35 square miles burning and raging, you're not going to be able to put out the fire. God compares their captivity in Babylon like a candle with a wick. Now, how difficult is it for you to blow out a candle? Pretty sink and simple, isn't it? The illustration that God is giving them is, I will accomplish what I am going to accomplish. As easy it is for you to blow out a candle, that's how easy it is for me to make good on my promise. That's what it means. Do not remember the former things, he says. You know why? Because that's all that they could remember. In 722 B.C., it's, we've been wicked. We've been guilty. We've been sinful. We've been rebellious. We've been disobedient. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where all you could think about was your failure? Have you ever woken up one morning and all you started to do an inventory and as you were doing the inventory, all you could think of was every 
bad thing that you've ever done. Every person that you've hurt. Every wicked and wrong thing that you've ever done. And as you think of every wicked and wrong thing and every sinful thing and every perverted thing and every stupid thing and every awkward thing. And then you go, oh, now it it, it makes sense to me why God has abandoned me. It makes sense to me why I am in captivity. It makes sense to me why my life is such a mess. But what he is basically saying is this. Do not remember the former things. Nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now remember what I said to you. Between Jerusalem and Babylon, there's over 400 miles of vast desert wasteland. So that even if they could escape from one of the most powerful armies in all of the world, how are they going to walk the 400 miles Back to Judah and Jerusalem. Remember the last time all of this went bad for them? When they were in Egypt, they spent 40 years walking in a wilderness. And it's less than 90 miles from downtown Jerusalem to the dirt in Egypt. We're going to have to go four times further. And whatever could go wrong will go wrong. And besides, even if we were released, how are we going to make it? How are we going to walk through the desert? How will we find our way? I'll make a road in the wilderness. How will we eat? How will we drink in the desert? I'll create rivers in the desert. You know why this is important? Because each and every one of us make excuses why we can't go in the direction that God wants us to go. I'll forgive you and I love you and I'll... I'll take you out of that place of bondage and rebellion and I'll walk you through it and I'll take you to a place of freedom and liberation. My wife won't understand. My husband won't understand. This won't happen. I'll lose my job. This we find all kinds of reasons why we can't honor and obey God. The point. God said, I've delivered in the past. I will deliver you in the present. I've delivered in the past and I will deliver you in the present if you will trust me. If you will trust me. And look, and look what it says in verse 20. It says, The beast of the field will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people My chosen. Well, what about the wild animals? If we go back out into the wilderness, they'll eat us. No, the jackals and the ostriches will honor me to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. Don't you understand what's happening? God is going to make good all of his promises to deliver and liberate them for his sake and for his glory. That's the idea. But now we see the perversity of the people. Look what it says in verse 22. 
But you have not called upon me, O Jacob. And you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. And you have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case. That you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned. And your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse. And Israel to reproaches. Understandably. This particular passage is very, very difficult. But let me try and help you make sense of it. Look again at verse 22. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. Here's the idea. Remember, they're in captivity. Remember, they're in bondage. Remember, they're in pain. But they haven't cried out to God. Have you ever found yourself in a circumstance where everything that can go wrong has gone wrong? And and because everything has gone wrong, for whatever reason, you didn't pray about it. You haven't cried out to God about it. You thought, okay, I'm I'm still, I'm not, look, it isn't so bad that, that I have to pray about it quite yet. But the Lord says, the people of God have not lived like the redeemed. God promises to save them. Listen carefully. They don't deserve to be saved. And the reason why this becomes important is because we don't deserve to be saved. If your salvation was based on you deserved to be saved then each and every one of us might as well give up right now and call it a day. But God will save by grace. God's salvation will be totally by grace. God's salvation will be totally by grace because He loves them. And see, your salvation by grace will be because God loves you. And the Lord notes the sin of prayerlessness and their failure to worship. You haven't called out to me. You haven't prayed. And you've been weary of me. The idea is, I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to go to the temple. I don't want to honor God. And by the way, two things. Remember, this is 180 years before the temple is destroyed. But when the children of Israel read these words a hundred years later, as they're standing on the banks of the Euphrates River and they have the scroll of Isaiah, the temple is destroyed. They don't have a way of sacrificing. By the way, has anyone ever asked the question? Well, how do Jewish people sacrifice? I mean, with the temple destroyed and they don't give sacrifices, how can you honor God? 
And remember, the Jewish people will respond, it isn't simply the sacrifices that are important. God understands. God knows that the temple is destroyed. God knows that we can't offer the sacrifices that are necessary. But you have to understand something. And we have to be careful here. There is a false worship. There is an empty, hollow, wicked, perverse worship. And as you read those words, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. The implication is that religion had become rote for them. We'll go to church, we'll light a candle, we'll make a sacrifice. It is our religious duty, it is our religious obligation. We will perform our religious obligation because the focus of worship isn't on the true and the living God. It's a worship that doesn't matter. It's a worship that doesn't count because it's a worship whose focus isn't on the true and the living God. And so, again, here's part of the point. The point is, look, I've gone to church, I've opened up my Bible, doesn't that count for something? Don't I get brownie points because I've come to church? No. Because worship isn't a religious duty. It isn't a holy obligation. Look what it says in verse 23. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings nor wearied you with incense. Note that word, nor wearied you. Here's, here's the point that the Lord is making. What? What are you saying? The sacrificial system, you're sick of it? You're sick of the, the goats and the bulls and the sheep? You're, you're sick of the blood? You're sick of the sacrifices? You're sick of the sacrifices? You, you have to understand something. What the Lord basically said was the sacrificial system was never was never meant to be a burden on you. You see. In the Levitical sacrifices, you had the burnt offering, you had the grain offering, you had the peace offering, you had the sin offering, and you had the trespass offering. And all of the sacrifices and all of the offerings were instituted so that the people could have their, their sense of guilt relieved. The sacrifices weren't meant to be a burden on you. It was meant to alleviate your burden. And when you come to church and you feel guiltier than when you first came into the church, that's not the point of church. You don't go to church to feel worse. You don't go to church to feel more guilty. You don't go to church so that you could be pressed with the presence of your sin and then depressed by all of your wickedness and sinfulness. The whole point was so that you could be unburdened. It's so that you could have your sins forgiven. It's so that you could experience washing and cleansing. You're supposed to go to church. Because the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering were all meant to typify the offering of Jesus Christ. We say it over and over again, almost like some sort of a religious chant. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. 
But remember what that means. It means that your sin is forgiven. It means that you can embrace grace. It means that His sacrifice is the real sacrifice. He's the one who gave His life, not you. He's the one who provided the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, not you. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You come to church to feel guilty. It's to be unburdened. And look what it says in verse 24. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. It's going to be almost impossible for you to understand this passage unless you listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The people decided to bring sacrifices, but not the sacrifices that God commanded. The worship wasn't really about God. The sacrifices that they brought did not remove sin. Their worship was, in fact, false worship. They were looking at themselves. They were going through the motions of sacrifice, but it was hollow and empty because they weren't looking to please the Lord. Here's the idea. What did God find inside of their hearts? We're sick of God. We're sick of sacrifice. We're sick of Judaism. We're sick of the church. We're sick of the Bible. We're sick of God. They're hollow. They're empty. They're meaningless. They're ritualistic. Sacrifice and worship was accomplishing nothing. Because it was a religious ritual. By the way, the Bible is a handbook about worship. The book of Leviticus, the book seldom people read the book of Leviticus. You know how you have a New Year's resolution each year that you're going to read the Bible and you read Genesis and somehow you make it through and then you get to Exodus and somehow you get get through it and then you get to Leviticus and you give up because you think, oh, my God, what is this burnt offering, sweet aroma, male sheep, goats, turtle doves. Grain offering, sweet aroma, fine flour, oil, frankincense, peace offering, unblemished male or female cattle, sheep, goats, sin offering. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. How am I going to make it through Leviticus? And sometimes you somehow you do. And then you make it through numbers and then you're going, oh, I can't take it anymore. I have no idea what I'm reading. And you have no idea that it's an elaborate manual. It's an elaborate script. And it's a type and a picture and a shadow 
of Jesus. You see, when you look at these, you 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 don't understand that the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, it, it denoted the total surrender to God as well as the substitutionary atonement. Grain offerings were made together with burnt offerings as sacrifices of thanksgiving and devotion. The peace offering was made so that you could have a right relationship and friendship with God, which were represented by the peace offering. The sin offering was required for unintentional sin. The trespass offering was required for unintentional sin against the Lord, against the holy things, against the neighbors, the whole type and the whole picture represented all of the sacrifices that were necessary to make sure all of your bases were covered. And here's the point. All sin, every sin, each and every specific sin is covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the point. If they followed the script, they would sometimes have extravagant and lavish worship. One time they sacrificed 22,000 oxen. One time they, they sacrificed 120,000 sheep in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 5. Now again, sacrificing 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, you have rivers and rivers and rivers of blood. But look what it says. You haven't satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. What? Have you ever went out to eat and there's a little fat on the meat? You know, you get a steak or you get something. I, I, I don't know about you. I'm not good with fat. I don't like fat. With 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, you are in fat overload. How much fat do you have to have before you're like at your fat limit? If God can have 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, but again, here's the point. The point is, the sacrifice was not made in the way in which it was intended to be made. Not to reveal guilt, but rather to exonerate guilt. It wasn't simply so that you would know your sin. It was so that you would experience freedom from sin. And when you come to church and you sing the songs and you pray to Jesus and you listen to the sermon and somehow you get up out of your seat and you walk through the exit and you go into the parking lot and you're still carrying the burden of your sin, you're not worshiping. Ray Ortland writes, but throughout Israel's history, they treated worship as a mechanism for controlling God and putting God in their debt. And naturally enough, it became wearisome. How could it be otherwise? Lugging sacrifice after sacrifice to the temple to obligate, to obligate God. There's no release for us in that. And Isaiah is saying that God himself doesn't enjoy it. The very worship Judah thought put them above reproach was itself in God's sight a reproach because it was weariness and heaviness rather than the lifting of the human spirit. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I thought worship was was about God. It is about God. 
Well, I thought worship was to tell God about, about what a wonderful God he is. That's exactly part of it. That is exactly right. He's a wonderful God. Why is he a wonderful God? Because he sent Jesus to die for your sin. To forgive your sin. To alleviate your guilt. To purge and cleanse and wash and wash and wash so that you experience freedom and the release of guilt. Jesus did that. And we praise him. You see, that's part of it. Worship, in part, is to unburden the sinner from their sin. And here's what you must understand. And God is pleased. God is delighted. It fills God's heart with joy when you're walking in freedom. When you are unburdened from your sin. When you've experienced forgiveness of sin. Where when you pray and you pray that prayer and you know that God has forgiven you in Christ. And that the wickedness and the circumstances that you've experienced in the past have been cleansed in the present because of what Jesus has done. That's the point. The Old Testament system of sacrifice prefigures the sacrifice of Jesus. And then Jesus is the means of grace. The cross of Jesus is the means of grace. But we make it a means of weariness. A pain of duty and obligation. I guess I'd better go to church. It'll make God happy. Oh, God, I guess I'll get up and read my Bible. What? Pray? Okay. Oh, God, I guess that's what I'll do. I guess I'll pray. It's all such a drag. It's all such a pain. What has happened to you? How could you take a means of grace? And how could you take a means of forgiveness? And how could you take something that's supposed to be filled with joy and make it a drag? It was never supposed to be that way. Our hearts are revived when we consider the finished work of Jesus. He's our sin bearer. God is our burden bearer. Christ is our sin bearer. And you know what you would think? You would think that kind of God is irresistible. A God who loves me? Okay, I'm there. A God who forgives me? Okay, I'm there. A a God who will forgive all sin, past, present, and future? But here's the rub. We want to save ourselves. We want to deserve to be good. We have this compulsive sense of reciprocity. In the holidays, you get it all the time. Do you ever get those letters in the mail from the disabled American vets? Or from the Association of Retarded Citizens? 
name your charity, they'll send you the envelope, they'll put a nickel in there, or they'll give you a self-addressed stamped envelope with return labels in the envelope. Do you realize that 19% of the people respond? And then 35% of the people respond when you include three personalized address labels. Do you want to know why? Because we, there's something inside of us that dreads getting something for nothing. Because you're taught from a very early age, there's no free lunch. Somebody's got to pay. Someone has to pay. It's like now. Okay, you gave me a gift. Oh, God, now I have to give you one. Oh, what should I do? How much did they spend? Five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks. There's some insane, sinister something inside of us that wants to deserve what we're getting. That's why the health and wealth gospel is so popular. That's why the seed faith gospel is so popular. If you give a hundred dollars, God will multiply your gift. And there's something inside of us that goes, really? Like if I put a buck in the agape box, I'll get ten bucks back. Or if I put a hundred bucks, then does that mean I get a thousand bucks? And you, you have to wonder if these people really believe that. Then why don't they take everything that they have and give it away every week? We give to get. And we give. Because we think that God will owe us. And when we worship God, not to unburden ourselves, but to obligate God, we actually wind up denying God. And God said, look, I've created a mechanism so that you could experience grace and mercy and peace. But the people weren't seeking God from a pure and an undivided heart. When they prayed and when they worshipped, it was a false kind of worship. When they prayed and they worshipped, there was still the stain of sin in their heart. And so they came with the stain. And they left with the stain. Because they didn't seek to be cleansed by the blood. And they didn't seek to be cleansed by the sacrifice. You see, coming to church doesn't cleanse you. And even studying the book of Isaiah doesn't cleanse you. What cleanses you is the real friendship and the real relationship that you have with the real Jesus. He washes you. He cleanses you. They didn't even offer the occasional special offerings, such as the fragrant cane or the incense or the fat from the sacrifice. That's what it says in verse 24. And so coming to God for forgiveness was the last thing on their mind. They didn't think they needed forgiveness. 
They didn't think that they needed forgiveness and they refused to obey God and they refused to obey the commandments and they continued to live unrighteous and immoral lives. They were focused on this world. They were selfish. They continued in their empty and hollow worship. They had no sense of sin, no awareness of their sin. Their hearts and their conscience were hard towards God. And note what the Lord says. They are burdening him with their sins. And wearying him with their iniquities. Remember what I said to you earlier? Well, I thought thought that's what God wanted. He wants our sin. That's exactly right. Jesus Christ is willing to take the burden of your sin. But hollow, empty, worship, religious, duty, compound sin. It doesn't alleviate sin. Religious ritual does not take away sin. It compounds sin. The moment that you think that you're okay because you went to church, because you read your Bible, because you observed your religious duty, is the moment that you're compounding your sin. And so once again, you think that the hammer's going to drop. Once again, you think that judgment's going to come. And look what it says in verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What is going on? Do you understand what's happening? I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to blot out your transgressions. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're religious. Not because you kept the rules. Not because you're a good person. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Your transgressions are those things that you've done willfully wrong, knowingly wrong. God has placed a line in the sand. A transgression means you cross the line. I am... I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What? What? I remember my sins. Most of you remember my sins. Oh, yeah, I remember. I've known you long enough that I can go way back and talk about your sins. But God will blot them out and remember them no more. And once again, the Lord calls them to appear at the legal trial. In verse 26, in chapter 43, it says, Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. Here's what he's saying. Okay. Now tell me again why I should save you. Tell me again why I should deliver you. Now remind me. Let us contend together. He's basically calling for a legal trial to plead their case, to review what's been done, to state the case for their innocence. 
Okay. Now tell me again, remind me again why you are innocent. Oh, I thought so. You're not innocent. You're guilty. But before they can speak, the Lord charges them with being just like their father who sinned. When it says, state your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned. Who is that? Adam? Did he sin? Yes. Or could it be Abraham? Did he sin? Oh, yeah. Remember all those lies? Remember all the wickedness or remember all of the sin? Adam lied. Abraham lied. Did Judah lie? Oh, man, if you know the Bible, you know that he was a big time sinner. Adam sinned. Abraham sinned. Judah sinned. Did David sin? Ooh, big time. Big time sinner. And look what it says. And your mediators have transgressed against me. Do you know who the mediators are? Everyone who stood in the gap. Moses was a mediator. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were mediators. The prophets were mediators. The prophets and the priests were the people who stood in the place of the people and advocated on behalf of the people. But even their hypocrisy was bad. Due to their persistent, unrepentant sin, the hand, the hand of God's judgment would fall but because of their false worship and unrepentant hypocrisy. The religious leaders would be disgraced. The people would be shamed. The nation would be destroyed. But God's word would be fulfilled. What? What? The people are a constant failure and a complete disappointment to God. Now think about this. Constant failure, complete disappointment. How does God save somebody like that? By grace, through faith, because he has a plan for his own sake. That's what it says. I want you to hear just the whispers behind the scenes. We have holy ancestors. Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Judah, David. We have holy ancestors. Not according to the Lord. They all sinned. Verse 28. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. This is a difficult passage in verse 28. The Lord identifies himself as God who blots out sins and forgets iniquities. And remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Remember, God says, I will remember their sin no more. And Satan appears before God and says, let me remind you of her sin. Let me remind you of his sin. Let me remind you of her sin. Let me remind you of his sin. And you know what Jesus says? Satan is not telling you the whole story. How can you dispute his sin? I, I can't. His sin is real. His failure is real. His disappointment is, is real. But you need to hear the rest of the story. I 
marched down that road. I experienced those lashes. I went to that cross. I, in obedience and humility, lived the life that they could never live. I died for their sins. And that sacrifice was completely satisfying to you, Dad. Oh, yeah. That's the rest of the story. When Satan accuses us of every wicked, true sin, Jesus reminds the Father to remember what matters most. It isn't your sin. And it isn't your record of sin. What matters most is the record of Jesus. Jesus Christ's record for our sake. That's grace. That's the mechanism. That's the path to repentance. That's the path to reformation. That's the path to revival. And even when you read that, I will give Jacob to the curse. By the way, that word means wholly given over to destruction and Israel to reproaches. The Lord invites us to come up with something inside of us that deserves his mercy in verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you might be acquitted. Oh, there, there is none. Now, I want you to think carefully for just a moment. When we blame God for the way that he treats us, where does that anger and hostility come from? When we blame God for the way that he treats us, it's because in our demanding self-righteousness, we are suggesting to God that we deserve something better. Here's my advice to you. Never, ever pray for justice for yourself. Isn't that true? God says, okay, make your case. We have nothing to be proud of. Down to your roots. Here's what we deserve. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. That means I will give Jacob to utter destruction. Do you really, really want justice? Okay, then you get destruction. Would you rather have grace? By the way, the word utter destruction is the same word used in the Bible for God's utter and total destruction of the Canaanite culture in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. Turning the grace of worship into the drudgery of penance turns Israel and grace into judgment in Canaan. And when we turn from grace, and when we embrace obligation and legalism and duty, we exalt ourselves. And we become simply another idol worthy of destruction. And that's where God finds us. But that's not where God leaves us. Unfortunately, I have to stop, but guess what? The remedy is found in chapter 44. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob. Remember his little worm. 
my servant and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and blessings on your offspring. What are you saying? I'm going to save you. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to do it all because of grace. Remember what it says in John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. The Father sent Jesus on a mission to liberate and save. So does God need to renew in your heart a clarity about his purpose for your life? Does God need to reawaken in you a love for the truth and a love for his standards? Does God need to refresh you? Do you need a little refresher course on grace? In his wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, William Newell has a section entitled A Few Words About Grace. I'm going to read them to you rather quickly. Number one, here's what grace is. Grace is God acting freely according to his own nature, as love, with no promises or obligations to fulfill, and acting righteously in view of the cross. Number two, grace, therefore, is uncaused in the recipient. Its cause lies wholly in the giver, in God. And number three, grace also is sovereign, not having debts to pay or fulfilled conditions on man's part to wait for. It can act toward whom and how it pleases it can and does often place the worst deservers in the highest favor to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy is the secret to receive grace. I'm going to repeat that to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy is the secret to receive grace. To hope to be better is to fail to see yourself entirely in Christ. Oh God. Oh God, I wish I could be better. I really do pray that. Just because I'm a wicked wicked, sinful person. But if I'm going to be accepted in Christ, it has to be totally and completely in Christ. He writes, to be disappointed in myself is to believe in myself. I'll repeat that again. To be disappointed in myself is to believe in myself. Now again, I want you to think about that in the context in which I'm speaking. That is to be disappointed in yourself. Thinking that if you were just simply better. That God would love you more. That he would give you more grace. That he would give you more forgiveness. That he would love you more, forgive you more, give you more grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. My advice? Stop believing in yourself. 
wholly, completely, firmly, confidently place your trust in Jesus for his grace. On January 15, 1951, Jim Elliott wrote this in his diary. For those of you who don't know him, he was later killed as a missionary. He wrote, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart. To gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not... If only I may see him, smell his garments, smile into my lover's eyes. Ah, then, not stars, no, nor children matter, only himself. That's when you worship. You see him. You know him. You understand him. You believe him that he loves you, that he's willing to forgive you, that he will alleviate all of your burden, all of your sin. He will take it all from you. If you walk out this door still burdened, by your sin. Then you fail to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray that each and every person. Would not fail to worship. But that they would in fact worship you. That Lord that they would give you exactly what you deserve. All honor. All praise. All glory. You have made your promise and you have kept your promise. You have forgiven us our sin and remembered it no more. You have forgotten that which could not be done. A holy God who knows all things at all times forgets, ceases to remember. Our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, our wickedness because of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Lord, how could we do anything other than love you? How could we do anything other than proclaim your glory? How could we do anything other than declare your majesty and your goodness and your love? And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that each person here would lay their burden down that the wickedness and the sin that which seems unforgivable that which seems reprehensible that which seems like 
that we deserve to carry, Lord, that we no longer carry. That we can with complete joy and complete confidence lay our burden down and experience your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness and your love in Jesus and him alone. Lord, forgive us for thinking that in some small way we could contribute to our own salvation, that we could rescue ourselves. Lord, that we could clear ourselves, that we could exonerate ourselves, that we could justify ourselves to you. Lord, what wickedness. And so, Lord, we commit to you all of our sin, knowing that it's taken care of by Jesus. His cross, His sacrifice, His mercy. Lord, I pray each and every person would consciously, deliberately, and specifically think about those sins that they no longer need to carry bitterness, anger, hatred, resentment, obligation, duty, religiosity, legalism. That, Lord, we could lay it all at your feet. That we could unburden ourselves. And that we could walk away clean, holy, liberated, pure. In Jesus' name, amen.